For some, who are travellers, the stars are guides. For others, they are no more than little lights in the sky. As said by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry from The Little Prince, That you are here listening to this would seem to indicate that you are a traveller and I will help you on your journey through the night sky. This is Geoffrey Wyatt and I'm one of the education team here at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, Sydney Observatory. I'm going to talk to you about what's visible in the sky for the month of December. This audio guide, transcript and printable sky map are all available free from our website at maz.museum where you'll find a link to Sydney Observatory and the monthly sky guides. To get the most from this podcast, you're going to need some resources, including a map of the December night sky, either from our webpage or from the Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom. At this time of year, it should be quite nice outside. So a nice, comfortable blanket to sit on, and perhaps a drop of Chardonnay for those of us old enough to enjoy it. Most importantly, I think you need patience, a sense of adventure, and imagination. Let's begin. Most of us can find the four cardinal directions, north, east, south, and west. Depending on the time of the year, the sun sets roughly in the west and rises in the east. With a little thought, we can then find north and south. If we consider this in a little more systematic way, we can find our direction around the horizon starting from north and moving in a clockwise direction as seen from above. East would be 90 degrees azimuth, that is 90 degrees east of north. 180 degrees azimuth is therefore south. 270 degrees is west and so on. That part is relatively easy. Now consider how high up from the horizon something might be. What I want you to do therefore is hold out your hand at arm's length. Clench your fist but then hold up your pinky. For most people, regardless of your age and your size, because the proportions are pretty much the same, your pinky at arm's length will cover roughly one degree of the sky or twice the size of the full moon. Close the finger in so you've got a clenched fist, and you've got a marker for roughly 10 degrees. Outstretch your fingers and your thumb, and from pinky tip to thumb tip you have 20 degrees. With a little practice, you'll be able to do it with ease. We now have an easy way of finding our directions. I want you to go to an azimuth of 270 degrees, so that's west. I want you to look at about 60 degrees up from the western horizon. That's about three outstretched hand spans. You're looking at a star that's only 25 light years away. And a light year is simply the distance that light travels in one year in the vacuum of space. Light travels roughly 300,000 kilometers per second in the vacuum of space. Multiply that by 60 seconds in a minute, 60 minutes in an hour, 24 hours in a day, and 365 and a quarter days per year, average, and you'll end up with something like nine and a half thousand billion 
kilometres, which is such a silly number, we just don't use it. It's too big, it's too complicated. We simply say a light year is the distance that light travels in one year in the vacuum of space. The star we're trying to find is 1.8 times the diameter of the Sun. It's a young white star and one of the first stars to have had planets directly imaged orbiting it. That was only done in 2008. The star is the brightest star in the constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish, and is called Fomalo. To the ancient Mesopotamians, perhaps as long as 5,000 years ago, this star was used as a calendrical marker. Along with three others, Aldebaran in Taurus, Regulus in Leo, Antares in Scorpius, the four stars were used to signpost the solstice and the equinoxes, but not anymore. Thousands of years ago, but no longer, Fomalo was the brightest star near the point in the sky that marked the winter solstice as seen from the northern hemisphere. When you look at Fomalo, there are not many bright stars nearby. What I want you to try and see is an image of a fish. Let your imagination go and you may just be able to see a simple fish if you play dot to dot. If not, how about one of those fabulous paisley swirls that were so popular in the 1960s? If you can see anything that looks like a paisley swirl with a bright star, Fomalo, at the chunky end of the swirl, then you are looking at a group or constellation of Pisces Astrinus, the southern fish. It is, incidentally, drinking the water flowing from the jug of Aquarius, the water carrier, but goodness me, that's very hard to see. Now that you've seen, though with some difficulty, Pisces Astrinus, look ever so slightly to your left or to the southwest. You'll probably need a star map, but try and look for a dot-to-dot -dot long-necked bird with trailing legs in flight. This particular group of stars is called Grus the Crane. It was created by Petrus Plancius, I don't know if I've pronounced his name correctly, in the late 1500s. He was a fairly famous Dutch astronomer. I've challenged you with these two groups of stars because I want you to see straight away they look nothing like the images you see in star atlases or many star maps. You've got to use your imagination to change crude stick figures into more elaborate creatures that we see in period drawings. But don't give up. It's well worth a try, and when you eventually do see some of these constellations, it's one of those, aha, I can see it moments. 40 degrees, or two handspans to the left of where we are, and about 60 degrees above the horizon, so that's three handspans up, you should be able to see the ninth brightest star in the night sky and the brightest star in the constellation of Eridanus, the river. The star is called Achenar, and it's rather intriguing because it's about seven times the diameter of the sun but spins 15 times faster. The effect of that rapid rotation is that the star flattens at the top and the bottom but bulges in the middle. In fact, its equatorial diameter is about 50% greater than its polar diameter. 
You're looking at this star as it really was 140 years ago. You're looking back into time. That means this star is at a distance of 140 light years. You see everything in the sky as it was, not as it is. From Achenar, continue to your left and drop down to about 35 degrees altitude looking for another bright star. It's actually the second brightest star in the night sky, but its low altitude at the moment will dim it by about 50%. It is Canopus at about 310 light years away. It's eight and a half times the mass of the Sun and 70 times its diameter, which makes it a pretty big star. At about 1,300 times the brightness of the Sun, it is the brightest star within 700 light years. Yet, as we look at it, it's only the second brightest star in the night sky. I wonder why. Canopus is a fairly famous star. It was listed by the incredible astronomer Claudius Ptolemy in his Almagest around 150 AD. This whole region used to be part of a big constellation called Argo, the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the Golden Fleece. But over the years, astronomers thought it was too big, so they broke it up into four smaller constellations that we have now. Carina the Keel, Vale of the Sails, Pixis the Compass, and Puppus the Deck. Canopus is now considered to be the brightest star in Carina the Keel. The name itself probably dates back to the time of the Trojan Wars, and according to the poems and stories of the time, it was the name of the ship's captain. Fair enough, we have a ship in the sky, why not have the captain as well? What I like about this star is that the Burong indigenous community, a clan of the Wurgaya language group in northwestern Victoria, see this star as a male crow by the name of Wa. Wa was the first entity to bring fire to the people and he is an elder of the Narambangatia, the old spirits in the sky. If you have a telescope or a pair of binoculars, this part of the sky, although it's a bit low, is actually a beautiful region to scan. Not far away from the star Canopus or Wa, we have the intriguing object called Eta Carina, which contains a cataclysmic variable star, though some more recent ideas suggest it is a violent binary, which last flared in the 1840s, when it went from a fairly inconspicuous third or fourth magnitude background star to being the second brightest star in the night sky and then slowly fading away from visibility. The Burong incorporated this star's variability into their dreamtime or oral traditions, which is really quite amazing. As a result, this star became known as Kologawarik Wa, which means the wife of the star Wa, or Canopus. Continue to the east and look about 20 degrees above the horizon. What you should see is a twinkling display of the brightest star in the night sky. It won't appear to be as bright as Canopus, which is higher up at this point in time, because being lower, you're looking through so much more of our beautiful atmosphere. It's a lot closer, at only 8.6 light years, making it the fifth closest star to us. It's quite young at roughly 200 to 300 million years. Its size, nearly twice as big as the Sun, and 25 times brighter. 
Well, I've just mentioned a few numbers. The main thing to note is that it is close. It's nowhere near as big or as bright as Canopus, but because it's relatively bright and very close, it becomes the brightest star in the night sky as seen from anywhere on the Earth. And it is Sirius, the dog star. It's a beautiful object and historically incredibly important. Thousands of years ago, the Egyptians watched it very carefully. They'd see it disappear into the glare of the setting sun, and then for about 70 days it would be gone. They would keep watch for it in the east early in the morning. When they first saw it pop up in the east, just ahead of the glare of the sun, in something called heliac or rise, they were able to work out, on average, the length of the year to be 365 and a quarter days. Their error was just 11 minutes compared to the tropical year that we use now, and they did this thousands of years ago, which is truly an amazing achievement. I'd like to point out again that to the Buron clan, it is Warapil, a male eagle, and again one of the elders of the Narambangatia, the old spirits. Let's continue around towards our left, or toward the east-northeast, and just about 20 degrees above the horizon. By the way, you may have noticed that we seem to be hugging fairly close to the horizon. I'll explain a little bit more about that later on. Look for a red supergiant. But to most people, it's not traffic light red or laser red. It's orangish. Anything that you see in this part of the sky that is not white or blue, you're probably looking at it. It's the eighth brightest star in the night sky, 1,100 times the diameter of the sun. Goodness gracious me, that's a huge object. Think about that for a moment. This little twinkling point of light that you're looking at in the east-northeast, roughly 20 degrees up, is 1,100 times the diameter of the sun. Don't forget, the sun is 114 times the diameter of the earth you're looking at something which is simply enormously big. Its distance? In the order of about 430 light years away. It's roughly 100,000 times brighter than the Sun, and it's a dying star. When you see a reddish-looking star, it can be one of two things. It's either an incredibly long-lived, in fact, you could almost say immortal star, or it's a short-lived star at the end of its life, as we see it. The thing is, the very small, almost immortal stars, well, none of those are visible to the naked eye. When you're looking around the night sky, every single star that you see that is orangish, reddish, is coming to the end of its life. They're all dying. We're not exactly sure of the mass of this star, but we know that it's fairly big. As a result, when it does die, it's going to explode as a Type II supernova. When? Next Tuesday at 2 o'clock. No, actually, we have no idea. It could be within the next million years or so. Who really knows? It would be really cool if it did explode during our lifetime, because it's relatively close and would be spectacular to watch. However, let me assure you, it cannot possibly hurt us. I haven't told you its name yet, have I? 
This is one of the most unusual names in the sky. A long, long time ago, its Arabic name was something like Ibtilyaza, which means the hand of the big man. As a result of hundreds of years of mispronunciation, the star Ibtilyaza is now commonly called Betelgeuse. Yes, I'm sure you've heard of it before. Some people call it Betelgeuse, Betelgeuse, or even just Betelgeuse. But they're all wrong. But they've become so common, they're all acceptable. Betelgeuse is a dying star. Despite being the second brightest star in the constellation of Orion the Hunter, it's actually named as the brightest. Additionally, Australians tend to get the name of Orion wrong, calling it the saucepan. You should have a lovely clear view of it at the moment, looking toward the east-northeast. Find the orange glow of Betelgeuse, then go a little bit higher, and you'll see three stars in a row, close together, of equal brightness. They make up the base of the saucepan. You can go up one side, go back, and up the other side, and then off at an angle for the handle, and there you have it. If you can find it, you've done well. I should point out that it's not only Australians. In fact, our friends across the ditch in New Zealand often get it wrong as well, and so do many people in southern Africa. If you can, point your binoculars or telescope at the handle of the saucepan and narrow in on the middle star-like object. What you will see is a stellar maternity ward, the birthplace of stars. And what you're looking at is the beautiful object named M42. Oh, great. What a fabulous name. Astronomers, like many other scientists, love cataloguing objects. M42 means that it is the 42nd object in a catalogue developed by a man whose name began with M, Charles Messier. He made up a list of red herrings, things not to look at if you were trying to find a comet. This particular object was simply the 42nd object of his catalogue. It is a nebula, which is the Latin word for cloud. It's a star-forming cloud that's roughly 1,300 light-years away. It's absolutely huge, 24 light-years across. And it's part of a much larger cloud that you can't see unless you do incredibly difficult astrophotography. The whole cloud is called the Orion Molecular Gas Cloud. This cloud of gas and dust that we can see is being lit up from within by at least six baby stars, and we call them the trapezium. If you have a look, you might just be able to see a few of them in there. We believe that there's enough material to form around 700 stars at the moment. Six of them, however, you can see relatively easily. Leaving Orion, our next stop is a little bit further around toward the northeast and just a little bit higher to 25 degrees above the horizon. We're looking for the star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus the Bull. From here you're going to see pretty much just another of these golden reddish stars. Again, the colour tells us the star is coming to the end of its life. Thousands of years ago from Mesopotamia, Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus was the brightest star near the vernal equinox. 
the vernal equinox is where the sun moves as we see it from the southern hemisphere into the northern hemisphere, marking the beginning of the northern spring. This was also used to signal the start of the new year in March. The idea of starting the year on the 1st of January was trialled a few thousand years ago but fell out of fashion, especially during the Middle Ages. It's only been since the Gregorian reform that it once again reverted to the 1st of January. England and its colonies only changed back to the 1st of January in 1752. Taurus, with its bright star Aldebaran, is perhaps the oldest of all 88 constellations that we now officially recognise. It's a very important creature. A bull is not only a food source for many of us, it's a beast of burden and many people depended on it. It's therefore not surprising that this animal worked its way into sky law. In one story, it's actually the king of the gods, Zeus or Jupiter, carrying his lover, the beautiful young woman Europa, off to the island of Crete. This was such a famous story from long ago, the entire continent of Europe took her name. Aldebaran, brightest star in Taurus, is what we call a K5 orange giant. It's the 14th brightest star in the night sky, at a distance of about 65 light years, and it's coming to the end of its life. At the moment, it's exhausted most of its hydrogen fuel in its core and has expanded to about 44 times the size of the Sun, but only a little under twice its mass. It will expand and die within a few million years at most. Go a little bit further toward the north, your left, and we're still only 25 degrees above the horizon. You're going to see a group of young stars, an open cluster, and most agree it is the most spectacular of all. It's called M45, or the Pleiades. At 445 light-years away, they're not exactly close, but they're very young, less than 150 million years old. They're so cute. They're baby stars that have just formed. When you look at pictures of M45 or the Pleiades online, you'll actually notice that quite often it's surrounded by a lovely bluish glow. That bluish dust cloud, as it turns out, is not part of the Pleiades itself. It's between us and the stars. The two-dimensional view that we have is a little confusing at times. There are many different cultural stories that relate to these stars as being seven sisters. If you look at them, however, you'll probably be able to see six. If you've got really good eyesight, you might see nine. Rarely do you ever meet anyone that can say, well, you know what, I can see seven. Yet strangely, they're often referred to as seven sisters. By the way, if you drive a Japanese car and it has an emblem on the bonnet of a group of stars joined by lines, you're looking at a Subaru. Yes, that's the Japanese name for this group of stars, Subaru. To the ancient Greeks, they represented the daughters of Atlas, who carried the world upon his shoulders, his wife, Pleione, and their seven daughters. It's well worth having a look at. The Pleiades used to be their own constellation, but for some time now we consider them to be part of the larger Taurus the Bull. Continue now toward the north and look for another zodiac constellation with an enormous number of stars. Let's count them together. 
in terms of bright stars, we have one, two, three, and that's it. It's fairly devoid of stars. What can you make out of a group of three stars? It's the horns of Aries. Aries is the goat that produced the golden fleece that's so famous in the story of Jason and the Argonauts. There's not a whole lot to see here, unfortunately, but it's a very famous constellation in terms of sky lore and astronomy. The astronomical version of longitude started in this part of the sky in what we call the first point in Aries. Sadly, it gets rather complicated here because the Earth does a 26,000-year wobble on its axis and everything changes position ever so slowly. The first point in Aries is no longer in Aries, but has now moved over into the next constellation, Pisces the Fish, and heading towards the constellation of Aquarius, hence the 1960s song, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius, though that's a few hundred years away. In my opinion, don't waste too much time looking into Aries with only three bright stars. Continue past it and look toward the northwest for a group of stars that make up a square. What you're looking for is the flying horse Pegasus. If you're away from the city lights and there's no moon, and you have a good view toward the northwest because it's quite low, you should be able to see the body of a horse, which is the big square. Look carefully on one of our star maps and you should be able to pick out the long neck and the face of the horse. It's got two cute little front legs, but sadly for a flying horse, what's missing? The wings. I can't ever see it with rear legs either. The main reason in spending time trying to find Pegasus is that wrapped around it is a fairly faint dot-to-dot -dot V shape with a little bit of a loop at either end. Oh goodness me, that sounds a bit complicated and you will definitely need your star map to be able to see this. The V shape with the loop at either end represents Aphrodite and her son Eros, or if you like, Venus and Cupid. It is the constellation of Pisces the fish. Continue past Pisces and we're going to finish off as we look toward the west for the constellation of Capricornus the sea goat. It's just below Fomalo, or our starting point, but being the second faintest of all the constellations, it's probably a bit late for that. I mentioned earlier that we've done a bit of a loop around the horizon, no more than 30 to 60 degrees up. We haven't been looking directly overhead. Why not? At this time of year, and the night, the brightest part of our galaxy, the Milky Way, is sitting around the horizon. The stuff that's directly overhead now, such as Phoenix the Bird, which is one of the 12 constellations invented by Petrus Plancius in the 16th century, or Cetus the Sea Monster, or some of the newer ones like Sculptor, were introduced by Nicolas Louis de La Salle in the 18th century. I've probably made a mess of his name, but that's the best I can do, I'm sorry. These constellations are in effect astronomical fillers, there's not a whole lot up there to have a look at with the naked eye. So they're there as a way of breaking the sky up into more manageable regions, a bit like outer suburbs of a big city. They are just some of the other constellations. If you can get away from the bright glow of the cities, 
little towns and there's no moon in the sky, head back toward the south and you should be able to see the large cloud of Magellan and the small cloud of Magellan. These look like two fluffy bits of the Milky Way that have drifted off and broken away, a faint wispy glow of light. The Large Magellanic Cloud is an irregular galaxy with a central bar. It's the third closest galaxy to us and at about a hundredth the size of our Milky Way. There's enough material in this galaxy to form about 10 billion stars, the same as the Sun. At 160,000 light-years away, astronomically, it's very, very close. It's so close that the Milky Way is actually stripping stars away from the Large Magellanic Cloud in something called the Magellanic Stream. If you've got a pair of binoculars or a telescope, the Large Magellanic Cloud is a rather spectacular object to have a look at. You'll be able to see one of the largest nebula that we've seen, called the Tarantula Nebula. Once again, nebula is just the Latin word for cloud. It's a rich, star-forming region and well worth a look. Long, long ago, last millennium, in 1987, Oh, goodness me, such a long time ago. This area of the sky was the home to the first supernova visible to the naked eye since 1604. We're desperate to see a star blow up in our galaxy. Well, not too close, of course, because we haven't seen one since the invention of the telescope more than 400 years ago. The other small patch of light that you can see is the small Magellanic Cloud. It has a mass of about 7 billion times that of the Sun and is about 201,000 light years away. Key events for December 2016. The first quarter moon is on Wednesday the 7th at 8.03pm Australian Eastern Daylight Time, or AEDT, which all of these times will be. Full moon is on Wednesday the 14th at 11.05am. Last quarter moon is on Wednesday the 21st at 12.56pm. New moon is on Thursday the 29th at 5.53pm. The summer solstice, the point at which the sun reaches its most southerly point in the sky, is at 9.44pm on Wednesday the 21st of December. This is also the longest day with the sun above the horizon for 14 hours and 25 minutes in Sydney. Many people assume that the longest day is the day on which we have the earliest sunrise and the latest sunset for the year. Some even get upset and write letters to the newspapers when they discover that this is not the case. The earliest sunrise is in early December, while the latest sunset doesn't actually occur until early January and that is the result of our non-circular orbit around the Sun and the tilt of 23.5 degrees caused by an impact perhaps as long as 4 billion years ago. Cool, huh? Sadly for 2016, the best meteor shower of the year, the Geminids, which peak on the 14th, will be ruined by the appearance of the full moon. Venus dominates the western sky in the early evenings and on the 3rd the young moon will be to the right or north. Mars, well past its peak for the year, is in Capricorn, heading toward Aquarius by the end of the month. 
On the 5th of December, the moon will be below and to the right or north. Keep Mars in mind, though, for the next favourable opposition in July 2018, when it will be at its best for the next 15 years or so. Early in the morning, look toward the east for Jupiter in the constellation of Virgo. On the 23rd, the moon will be below and to the left or north, rising at around 2am. If you want more detailed sky maps, sunrise, sunset, moon and tide times, and a whole lot more astronomical information, I recommend that you buy the book The Australasian Sky Guide by Dr Nick Lom, available from Sydney Observatory and Powerhouse Museum shops. It's only $16.95 if you come into our shops. There are additional postage charges if you order online. Our website at maz.museum has lots of up-to-date information in our astronomy blog and details about visiting Sydney Observatory to use our telescopes, see a program in our space theatre or visit the Digital Planetarium. We have programs for all ages and you can engage with us on Facebook by searching for Sydney Observatory or via Twitter at SydneyObs. My name is Geoffrey Wyatt. I'm one of the team here at the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences Sydney Observatory and I hope you've enjoyed this tour of the December night sky.